On the evening of Saturday, January the 13th, 2007, Simon Edwards and Rachel Warren enter an office building in South London, where the market research company Research Now is headquartered. They're looking for their friend, Kathy Marler, a finance manager at the firm. Originally from New Zealand, 28-year-old Kathy had gone into the office that morning to catch up on a backlog of work. But her friends haven't heard from her for hours. Rachel is Kathy's flatmate. They had arranged to meet at two, but Kathy didn't show up, despite calling to confirm at around 1.30. At first, Rachel thought that maybe the pile of work had turned out to be bigger than Kathy anticipated. She probably had her head down and was trying to get through it all as quickly as possible. So she decided not to pester her friend. Still, it was odd that Kathy hadn't texted her to let her know she was going to be late, or even to cancel. It definitely wasn't like Kathy to just stand her up like that. As the time dragged on, Rachel became anxious. She tried calling Kathy, but she wasn't picking up. Rachel then messaged and rang round other friends to see if they'd heard from Kathy. No one had. Throughout the course of the afternoon, Rachel grew increasingly fearful. What if Kathy had had some kind of accident? The friends she spoke to tried to reassure her. Sensing her panic, they offered to help her look for Kathy. It was decided to search the streets between the meeting place and Kathy's work. Rachel even called in at a cafe that she knew Kathy frequented. After several frantic hours, there was still no sign of Kathy. Eventually, Rachel got hold of Simon Edwards, Kathy's colleague at Research Now. He agreed to let her into the office, where Kathy was the last time she had heard from her. As the pair walk in, they are met by a shocking scene. The floor of the reception area is pulled with blood. Blood is spattered on the walls too. Trails of it lead away down the corridor as if something or someone has been dragged along the floor. The drag marks lead towards a shower room in which they can hear water running. They call out Kathy's name, but there's no answer. Edwards gestures to Rachel to stay where she is while he goes to investigate. There, lying across the bottom of the shower cubicle, is a fully clothed body. Edwards can see it's a woman, but he can't be sure it's Kathy. Her clothing has been pulled up to cover her face. Maybe you shouldn't do it. Maybe you shouldn't touch anything. But he has to know. He pulls the jacket down. He lets out a deep gasp of shock. His worst fears confirmed. It is her. A pink scarf is wrapped around her neck. Her expression is fixed. Her body unmoving. It's obvious that she is dead. Obvious, too, that someone has killed her. It's time to call the police. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. 
Sometimes a trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. no better feeling than a personal win and the state farm personal price plan can help you do just that talk to a state farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan like a good neighbor state farm is there prices are based on rating plans that vary by state coverage options are selected by the customer availability amount of discounts and savings and eligibility vary by state what does motion sound like with kizik hands free shoes it sounds a little something like this Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The case falls to senior homicide investigator Detective Chief Inspector Damien Elaine of Scotland Yard. Elaine has 20 years' experience as a copper. Like all British police officers, even plain-clothed detectives, he started out as a uniformed bobby. He learned the job the hard way, pounding the beats, responding to call-outs, confronting violent offenders. He's had to talk down people on the edge, pick up the pieces after drug overdoses, and break the worst kind of news to the families of murder victims. Now, he wears a tailored suit instead of a blue uniform. He's added specialized training in homicide detection to the broad policing skills he picked up over the years. And he's moved up the ranks from constable to chief inspector. But for him, the essentials of the job remain the same. To put the villains away and make the streets a little safer. Before he goes into any crime scene, DCI Elaine always pauses to prepare himself mentally for what he's about to see. It's a moment of calm when he tries to clear his mind so that he can take in any details that might turn out to be significant. There's an emotional aspect to it too. No matter how experienced you are, being confronted by the aftermath of violent, sudden death never gets any easier. DCI Elaine is not immune to the horror that confronts him when he enters the Research Now reception. There is so much blood on the floor and walls. It's clear that there was a sustained, violent struggle. DCI Elaine follows the bloody drag marks to the shower room. He takes in the scarf around Kathy's neck. Naturally, they will have to wait for the post-mortem to know the cause of death for sure but the livid bruises around her throat suggest strangulation, while the multiple wounds on her head indicate a savage attack. Elaine inhales deeply and detects the distinctive odor of bleach. 
There are signs that someone has tried to clean up the evidence, but there's just too much blood to wash away. It's Elaine's job now to make the difficult judgment calls. How to allocate resources, how to gather evidence, who to interview, and even when to arrest a suspect. To help him build up a picture of what happened, DCI Elaine talks to the officers who were first on the scene. He's not surprised to learn that there are no eyewitnesses to the attack. That would be too easy. DCI Elaine's first and biggest challenge is to secure the crime scene. The reason this is such a challenge is because, to put it simply, the area is so big. It extends over a three-story building that houses multiple firms and offices. Kathy's killer could have gone into or come from anywhere inside it. DCI Elaine takes a decision that is not going to be popular with the bosses of any of the companies in the building. To prevent contamination of valuable evidence, he orders the building to be closed down and the businesses moved out. When the anxious business owners ask him how long this is going to take, he gives an uncompromising answer. Three months. DCI Elaine knows how hard it is to gather forensic evidence, even from a small, relatively contained crime scene. A crime scene of this scale just multiplies the difficulties. For him, finding Kathy Marlowe's killer is more important than any commercial interests. He installs an army of around 100 specialist examiners, including fingerprint experts, DNA experts, blood pattern analysts, crime scene managers, and photographers. Initial inquiries reveal that there are no CCTV cameras inside the building. There are plenty of cameras in the surrounding streets, however, but going through the thousands of hours of footage they have recorded will tie up all his resources indefinitely. Until they have a better idea of what they're looking for, Elaine decides it's a waste of time. Like looking for a needle in a haystack, only harder. In the meantime, Elaine is told that they already have a suspect in police custody. Simon Edward. DCI Elaine was not involved in his arrest. It happened before he took over the case. He's not wholly convinced that his fellow officers have got it right despite the fact that Edwards is not able to provide an alibi for the afternoon of Kathy Marlowe's murder. Yes, the perpetrator may be one of Kathy's colleagues. In other words, someone she knew who also has access to the office. Edwards ticks both those boxes. But it may equally be an outsider whom Kathy interrupted while they were carrying out a burglary. In the early stages of an investigation, DCI Elaine's preferred method is to keep an open mind. As far as he's concerned, they just don't have enough evidence yet to arrest anyone. The post-mortem hasn't been completed, and they haven't even been able to construct a working hypothesis of what might have happened. Elaine talks to the arresting officers to better understand why they have targeted Edwards. Their response doesn't exactly inspire confidence. They reveal that the chief reason they arrested Edwards is that they had considered him to be over-helpful in his interactions with the officers at the scene. For some reason, this aroused their suspicions. They also cite the fact that he knew where the body was and led them straight to it. 
However, it's clear to anyone that you don't have to be the murderer to be able to follow the bloody trail to the shower room. But their basic reasoning is not as far-fetched as it might sound. There have been cases of murderers coming forward to help the police. For example, joining in searches to find children they themselves have abducted. Possibly they see it as a way of diverting suspicion. It also enables them to get close to the investigation so they can gain police officers' confidence and pick up useful information. Many get a perverted thrill out of it too. But DCI Elaine thinks there may be a more straightforward explanation of why Edward's behavior seemed odd to the officers. Perhaps he was simply in shock. In the absence of real evidence, Elaine's instinct and experience are telling him that the officers who arrested Edwards have got it wrong. When he talks to Edwards, he's even more convinced. The man is clearly devastated by his friend's death and the circumstances in which he found her. The appalling shock of the experience is written all over him. He apologizes to Simon Edwards for what he has been through and eliminates him from the inquiry. Edwards is surprisingly understanding and accepts that the police were just doing their job. Like all of Kathy's friends, he just wants them to catch her murderer. Releasing a suspect is one of the big calls that an officer in charge has to make. In many ways, it's an even bigger call than making an arrest, because if you get it wrong and mistakenly set free a killer, they may go on to kill again. But DCI Elaine is soon vindicated in his decision. A few days into the investigation, he's able to construct a working hypothesis of the crime. The spatter analysis confirms his initial impressions. This was a frenzied attack, prolonged and brutal. It's more than likely that the perpetrator was also injured as Kathy desperately fought back against her attacker. The fact is, Simon Edwards had not sustained any of the injuries you might expect in such a confrontation. In addition, the police are informed by the management of Research Now that several laptops have gone missing. It now looks likely that Kathy interrupted an intruder or intruders as they were engaged in a robbery. But what could their possible motive be for killing her, especially in such a savage manner? It just doesn't add up. Why would you bludgeon to death someone who catches you stealing a few laptops? It's a huge escalation of the offense, taking it from a fairly minor robbery to the worst kind of murder. The stakes for the perpetrator are just not high enough to justify this level of violence. DCI Elaine knows that most professional burglars prefer to avoid trouble if they can. It's all about balancing risk and reward. They're far more likely to ditch their stolen goods and make a quick getaway. Staying to fight will only increase the chances of getting caught. It's just not worth it. Elaine tries to make sense of the apparent inconsistency. The extreme frenzy of the attack versus the relatively low value of the prize. It suggests someone out of control, someone who has lost perspective. Kathy Marlowe was a slightly built woman of five foot two. If she had challenged the intruder, it would have been an easy matter for them to push past her, perhaps leaving her sprawled on the floor and bruised. 
but there was absolutely no need, no reason to do this. DCI Elaine starts to build a picture of Kathy's attacker. What he sees more clearly than anything is rage. He imagines someone, most likely a man, lashing out in rage and frustration as he is prevented from taking the items that he had planned on stealing, that he felt entitled to steal. But something is nagging Elaine. Why would Kathy challenge an intruder in the first place? Is it possible that she knew the individual after all? For now, Elaine can't be sure. But just asking the question raises the possibility. And it might explain why the laptop thief thought it necessary to kill her. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. For DCI Elaine, working a case like this is a methodical process. It's important to stick to tried and tested police procedures and not get overwhelmed by everything they don't know. Initially, his team focuses on Kathy's friends and colleagues, taking statements and checking alibis. It's as much an exercise in eliminating the innocent as implicating the guilty. So Elaine is neither surprised nor disappointed when it doesn't lead anywhere. This is how old-school policing works. The next task is to recreate Kathy's movements on the day she was murdered. Elaine knows from her flatmate that she left the flat at nine that morning. He also learns that Kathy was in the habit of calling in every day at a particular cafe for her morning coffee. For now, DCI Lane has ruled out using street CCTV. Even so, he decides it's worth looking at the coffee shop's own footage for that morning. Perhaps Kathy had an encounter with someone there. It's possible her murderer could have picked her out in the cafe and followed her to work. There's no evidence of this, but the footage does reveal something interesting. At the cafe, Kathy clearly had a handbag over her shoulder. And yet the forensic specialists who have meticulously combed the crime scene have not been able to locate it. The conclusion must be that the perpetrator took it away with them. Scotland Yard releases a description of the handbag. It's brown leather, about 10 inches by 10 inches, with a flap over the top, fastened by a large silver buckle. DCI Elaine instructs one of his team to contact Cathy's bank. In particular, he wants to know if anyone tried to use her credit or debit cards after her death. 
The answer is yes. It's the first major breakthrough of the case. Every ATM is fitted with CCTV, so the bank is able to provide DCI Elaine with an image of the man who was attempting to take money from Kathy's account. Elaine circulates the image via the police's internal communications network. Now, it's a waiting game. One that may or may not produce results. As it turns out, Elaine doesn't have to wait very long. Two separate officers contact him almost immediately, both naming the individual as one Daniel Kennedy. Kennedy's name has not come up in the investigation so far. In other words, he is not known to be a friend or colleague of Cathy's. DCI Elaine immediately consults the police database and discovers that Kennedy is a known criminal with previous convictions for petty theft. A small-time crook, in other words. Elaine knows it's a big leap from petty theft to murder, and there's nothing in Kennedy's record that indicates violence. But still, they do have him on camera, trying to use Kathy's bank card. At the very least, Kennedy has some questions to answer. The first one being, did you kill Kathy Marlowe? DCI Elaine digs a little deeper and discovers that Kennedy is due to make a court appearance that very day. It's quite a coincidence, which happens to be extremely helpful to the investigation. Now, Elaine knows exactly where Kennedy will be at a given time. DCI Elaine dispatches officers to make an arrest. Daniel Kennedy appears genuinely surprised when the officers confront him on his way out of the courtroom. When the handcuffs tighten around his wrists, his surprise turns to anger. What's this about? He wants to know. They don't have enough evidence to arrest him for murder, so the charge is handling stolen property. It's only when they get him back to the station that they drop the bombshell. This is about murder, they tell him. The murder of a young woman called Kathy Marlowe. The name rings a bell, of course it does. It was the name on the bank card that Kennedy attempted to use. The color drains from his face. Kennedy seems genuinely shocked. He shakes his head in disbelief. This can't be happening. He's not a murderer, he tells the detectives. Then how does he explain having Kathy's bank card? Daniel Kennedy's story is that he found the handbag in a back street while walking through Vauxhall, South London. The street he names is close to the Research Now building, but Kennedy claims he had nothing to do with the theft of laptops there. Naturally, the officers interviewing him want to know if there is anyone who can verify his story. Kennedy tells them he was with his partner, Linda Profit, when he found the bag. She backs up his account. Given Kennedy's track record as a petty thief, this all has the ring of truth to it. But the detectives don't just take his word for it. They take forensic samples to see if there are any traces of his DNA at the crime scene or on Kathy's body. Eventually, Kennedy is eliminated as a murder suspect, though he is charged with handling stolen property. As for Kathy's bag, it turns out that Kennedy still has it at home. He takes the detectives back with him and hands the bag over, 
its contents still inside. This is now important evidence. It may well contain traces of Kathy's attacker. Though the ATM withdrawal has not led directly to the killer, it's not a complete dead end. They're getting closer. DCI Elaine can feel it. The investigation gathers pace after the results of the post-mortem come in. While noting the multiple head injuries inflicted by a blunt instrument, the Home Office pathologist Peter Jurit gives the cause of death as asphyxiation. As DCI Elaine has suspected, Kathy was strangled with her own scarf. Not only that, the finger-shaped bruises around Kathy's throat show that she had desperately tried to pull the scarf away as her killer tightened it around her neck. Forensic scientists are also able to retrieve two separate DNA samples from under two of Kathy's fingernails. Both samples are from the same man. This could be evidence of Kathy's fight against her attacker. A search on the police DNA database comes up with a match and a name, Matthew Fagan. Fagan's DNA had been taken when he was arrested and cautioned for being drunk and disorderly. At the time, it was not normal procedure in the UK for DNA to be taken for such a minor offence. DCI Elaine has an overzealous arresting officer to thank for this crucial breakthrough. But there's more. Further inquiries reveal that until nine months ago, Fagan had worked at Research Now as their web production manager. He'd even sat at the bank of desks next to Cathy's. It turns out Fagan was fired because of his incompetence and unreliability. Seems he left the company under a cloud and bearing a massive grudge. DCI Elaine authorizes the arrest of Matthew Fagan on suspicion of murder. Detectives track Fagan down to his home in Elephant and Castle in the South London borough of Southwark. He makes no effort to resist arrest and in a strong American accent denies any knowledge of Kathy Marlowe's murder. When the 32-year-old Fagan is brought into the station, DCI Elaine forms his first impressions of the suspect. At over six feet tall and with an imposing 146 kilo frame, Fagan would have towered over the petite Kathy Marlowe. He could easily have overpowered her, but was he capable of killing her? There is nothing in his history to suggest a propensity to violence. Yes, there was the drunk and disorderly charge and the fact that he had been fired from his job, but neither is enough to flag Fagan as a potential murderer. Fagan was born in Oregon, USA, though his family moved between Washington State and Canada when he was growing up. They eventually settled in a small logging town called White Salmon when Fagan was 14. According to one of his high school teachers, he did not stand out and was not in a lot of trouble. He was just an average guy. Under police questioning, Fagan gives nothing away. His expression and body language remain calm and unconcerned, almost too confident. He repeatedly denies that he had anything to do with Kathy's murder. And when questioned about the burglary, he denies that too. At least now, Elaine's team have a face to look for in the CCTV footage from the street cameras. 
before long, they come across a grainy segment showing a man who could be Fagan walking in the direction of the Research Now office. The man is wearing a large rucksack on his back. The rucksack appears to be empty. The same man is later seen walking in the opposite direction. Now his rucksack is clearly full. But is it Fagan? When he's shown the CCTV footage, Fagan denies it's him. In fact, he says he has an alibi for the time of the murder. He claims he was seven miles away in Lewisham. Not only that, he was mugged and even reported the mugging to the police. Fagan's story checks out, up to a point. He did report a mugging to the police in Lewisham. There is no proof, however, that a mugging took place. Fagan says he went to Guy's hospital to receive treatment for a head wound sustained during the alleged mugging. DCI Elaine's team checked the hospital's internal CCTV cameras. Sure enough, there's Fagan at the accident and emergency department waiting to be seen by a doctor. This time there's no doubt, it's Fagan. It even looks like he's making sure he's noticed. But DCI Elaine is suspicious. It seems odd that Fagan should be the victim of an assault at precisely the moment he is himself accused of attacking and killing someone else. It all looks like a smokescreen, designed to provide him with an alibi and explain away his injuries. And the timing is far from watertight. Fagan could easily have been at the Research Now building at the estimated time of Cathy's death and then made it to Lewisham for when the mugging report is logged. Elaine compares the hospital CCTV footage to the man seen walking towards and away from the Research Now offices. Could it be the same person? Both have a large rucksack on their backs. But the figure in the street CCTV is frustratingly blurred. Then Elaine notices something interesting. Both individuals have a distinctive walk. The same distinctive walk. It's so pronounced it's almost a limp. In Elaine's mind, there's no doubt that it's the same person. He calls in a forensic podiatrist, someone who specializes in analyzing the unique way people walk. The expert confirms it. The man in the street CCTV is the same man as in the guy's hospital CCTV. And that man is Matthew Fagan. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. 
How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and relove our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Under UK law, the opinion of a forensic podiatrist is not enough on its own to secure a conviction. But it can be used to support other evidence. Fortunately, DCI Elaine already has the samples of Fagan's DNA recovered from beneath Kathy's fingernails. And now, his scene of crime officers find even more evidence linking Fagan with Kathy's murder. They discover smears of blood on the underside of the desks, which the stolen computers were taken from. Given the location, it's unlikely to be Kathy's blood. Elaine struggles to imagine a scenario where she would be crawling around under the desks. But could it be Fagan's? DNA analysis comes back with a definitive answer. Yes, the blood is Matthew Fagan's. This adds a chilling twist to DCI Elaine's reconstruction of what happened. It appears that Fagan calmly went about unplugging and stealing the computers after he had killed Kathy. It takes a special kind of person to remain so cold and detached after the shocking brutality of Kathy's death. And yet, until this day, Fagan was just an average guy. Faced with this new evidence, Fagan's wall of denial collapses and he has to come up with another story. Yes, Fagan finally admits. He was there at Research Now the day that Kathy Marlowe was killed. But he didn't kill her. According to Fagan, here's what happened. Since he got fired from his job with Research Now, he'd been working cash in hand as a removal man. The work wasn't regular and it didn't pay the bills. Fagan found himself sinking deeper and deeper into debt. Pretty soon, his financial situation was desperate. Fortunately, some of his new colleagues told him about a side hustle they had that helped to make ends meet. Burglary. They made it sound like easy money, so he joined them on a few jobs. One day, he revealed to his fellow thieves that he still had the keys to an office where he used to work. The place was always deserted at the weekend. Why don't they go there and help themselves to some laptops? So that's what they did. Naturally, DCI Elaine wants to know the names of these accomplices. But Fagan claims he only knew them by their first names. One was called John, the other Gregor. So what about their phone numbers? Ah, yes, says Fagan. The problem there is that his phone, with all their details on, was stolen when he was mugged. Elaine narrows his eyes suspiciously, but nods for Fagan to go on with his story. The way Fagan tells it, he managed to get them into the reception area of the company. Then he alone went into an adjoining room to look for some swipe cards so they could access the offices where he knew the best laptops were. While he was away, he heard raised voices. He came back to see what was happening and saw the back of someone's head as they were talking, in some agitation, to John. 
When this person turned around, Fagan saw it was Kathy Marlowe. She immediately recognized him and asked him what he was doing. She then started yelling at him to get the hell out. His associates were far from happy that he'd been recognized and they wanted to shut Kathy up. So John went for her, grabbing her over the mouth. Fagan joined in, helping to drag Kathy out of the reception area. There was a struggle. It must have been now the traces of his DNA got under her fingernails. Kathy hit him in the face with her handbag. They pinned her down on a chair and tied her up with her own scarf and a towel. Then Fagan went to wash the blood from his face. When he came back, he apologized to Kathy and reassured her that everything would be all right. If she just sat quietly, she wouldn't be hurt. She was really angry. She just kept glaring at him. Fagan decided he didn't want anything more to do with it. And so at that point, or so his story goes, he just walked away, leaving Kathy with his mysterious accomplices who, presumably, killed her. He doesn't know. He wasn't there when it happened. It's a flimsy tale, and actually doesn't address the crucial question of how his blood came to be under the desks. And that's not all they have. They have him on street CCTV around the building, before and after the murder. They have his DNA under Kathy's fingernails. They have the fact that he's changed his story, at first denying he was at research now that day, and even trying to create an elaborate alibi by reporting a fictitious mugging. DCI Elaine decides they have enough. He charges Matthew Fagan with the murder of Catherine Marlowe. They already have a considerable body of evidence against Fagan, but Elaine knows that if he is to convince a jury beyond all reasonable doubt, the more evidence he has, the stronger his case will be. He encourages his army of forensic specialists to keep looking. A number of additional pieces quickly fall into place. First, they find a tiny speck of flesh with a hair attached to it on the wall near the site of the original attack. DNA analysis again identifies it as Matthew Fagan's. It shows the violence of the struggle and the fact that Fagan was directly involved. Kathy was clearly defending herself against an attack from him. Next, after Fagan's name appears in the papers in connection with the crime, a man comes forward saying that he had bought a number of laptops from Fagan shortly after the murder had taken place. The computers are found to be those stolen from research now. Finally, shortly before the trial is due to begin, the results of the forensic examination of Kathy's handbag come in. Fagan's DNA and fingerprints are all over it, inside and out. It's clear that he handled the bag and its contents, including her cards and makeup. He sold the laptops, he had her handbag. Neither of these facts are consistent with his version of events. Despite this, Fagan continues to maintain his innocence, and at his trial, he pleads not guilty, blaming others for Kathy's death. The prosecution is led by Richard Whittam, QC, who ruthlessly and forensically lays out the mountain of evidence against Matthew Fagan. Fagan then makes what is perhaps his biggest mistake. He decides to take the stand 
and give evidence in his own defense. The decision reveals his arrogance. He clearly believes he can run rings round the highly experienced barrister and his legal team. But his performance is oddly wooden, and he's unable to adapt his story to the actual evidence. On point after point, he is shown to be lying. Every claim he makes is contradicted by the facts, and he is unable to provide any proof to back up his own account. Richard Whitton tears apart his tissue of lies. It takes the jury just three hours to reach a unanimous verdict. Matthew Fagan is guilty of the murder of Catherine Marlowe. He is sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 26 years. There were no accomplices, no mysterious John or Gregor. He alone entered the offices of Research Now that day to steal six Dell laptops. He alone struggled with Cathy. He alone struck her head with a hammer. He alone strangled her with her own scarf. He alone was responsible for her death. For DCI Lane, it's an emotional moment. Kathy's family have traveled from New Zealand to be present at the trial. Her sister Debbie, brother Brendan, and father Bernard. As Elaine recalls in a TV interview, we hugged each other, which was probably not very professional in the court, but I think emotions slightly took over. With tremendous dignity and courage, Bernard Marlowe speaks for the whole family outside the Old Bailey when he says, Today's verdict will bring some closure in seeing that justice has been served. However, it won't bring our Catherine back. She lives in our hearts and minds every day. We have lost our Catherine. She is gone forever, and that will never change. As for her murderer, he has this to say. Whatever sentence he receives will never bring Kathy back, nor erase for us the horror of her suffering and death at his hands. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, a wealthy widow goes missing, a charming businessman comes under suspicion. In 1949, London is living through a period of post-war austerity. 69-year-old Mrs. Durand Deacon has an idea that will bring a touch of glamour to women's lives, a new kind of artificial fingernail. John Haig, a fellow resident of the hotel where she lives, offers to help with the manufacturing. The two arrange a visit to his workshop in Sussex. Mrs. Durand Deacon is never seen again, her body never discovered. Haig claims she failed to make their appointment, but the police suspect otherwise, and the forensic scientists of Scotland Yard are determined to prove it. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, 
John Hopkins. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 